Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Can you please tell me what you had for breakfast? Uh, well, I had a big smoothie, uh, put a lot of greens in it, a banana, berries, uh, spinach, and kale. And milk? No milk? Oh, uh, vegan. I'm so sorry. Uh, what a uh, stupid I, question. A, a little bit of coconut milk. <laughs> this week on The Empire, we sat down with Bessem Yusuf at his home in Los Angeles in California. His two adorable children, Najee and Adam, were playing inside, so the quietest place we could find to record was outdoors, seated around a table in his garden. Yeah, this is Adam crying in the background, if you like, because this is happening in my house, and my and Adam is not very happy. I think he needs uh, needs uh, is his uh, lunchtime. My name is Basim Youssef. I was born in Egypt, Cairo, and uh, I'm 44 years old. I uh, grew up in a middle-class family. My father was a judge, and my mom was a university professor. And um, after I finished high school, I went to two medical school. And for 19 years, I studied and worked as a doctor. And then uh, 2011, everything changed. During the Arab Spring, Bassem Youssef became something of a legend. His political satire show, Al Barnameg, reached 40 million viewers weekly. For context of how big of a deal that is, that's nearly half the entire population of Egypt. Or, as another reference point, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, at its height, had an audience of 2 million viewers. So Bassem, 40 million. Jon Stewart, 2 million. Bassem was huge. And then, as many of us know, Everything changed. Today on El Empire, a story of reinvention. I'm Dana Balut. And I'm Hiba Fisher. And you're listening to El Empire. It went viral. It was everywhere. It's very, very foreign to Arab culture to talk about personal things publicly. Twelve years before that, I was under the bombs of Beirut. I didn't go to therapy. I think I should. This is El Empire, stories of exceptional Arabs around the world and their journey to the top. Okay, um, let's start at the beginning. If your mother had to describe you at the age of 12, how would she describe little Basson? I was very responsible at the age of 12. I was the younger of two brothers. My brother was five years older than me, but when they would travel, they would leave the keys with me because I was focused on, like, getting things right. So, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I, I think I was a good kid. I was, a, I think I was a disciplined kid. Yeah. And I was a nerd, and that's why I went to medical school. 
When you say that you were a nerd, what were your favorite subjects in school? Hmm. Uh, biology and, and math. And I, I like history, too. Did you always want to be a doctor? So if you are in the Middle East, you are only allowed to be an engineer or a doctor or a disappointment. That are the three options that you get. And um, I, I saw my brother going into hell in engineering, and I didn't want to go there. So, so I went to medicine. So it was more kind of like an exclusion uh, uh, decision. Process of elimination. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what was your brother like, and what was your relationship like with your brother? Oh, typical um, two uh, brother. At the, uh, when we were much younger, uh, it was not good. They were like, he uh, would hit me a little bit, whatever. But like, actually, we became very close. I, uh, we, we are very close. We, we are. Uh, I mean, he's the only one left for me. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm like, he's a, he's a, he's a great guy. Very sincere. Very. Um, yeah, very dedicated. So yeah, so it it, it was it, it was a cool thing. And when I was old enough, I started kind of like to play soccer with him. So that was like an hour bond, yeah, because he was very good at soccer. I wasn't very good, but I would, I would be very energetic in the field. Were you funny back then? Uh, I don't know if I was. I mean, I was every day funny. I was like, uh, I, I was lively. I was loud. Maybe not funny. I, I wouldn't stand out out of other people who would for much funnier than me. So no, not especially. So um, before you decided to go into medicine, did you have any kind of jobs growing up? Yeah, I did part-time jobs. At the, my last year of medicine, I was sick and tired of medicine and I wanted anything else to do. So I borrowed some money from my dad and I opened a chicken farm. I, I bought 10,000 chicks, uh, one-day chicks, uh, where did this idea? <laughs> where did this idea come from? I, I, I have to say that maybe it comes from like after seven years of medicine, I was not very happy with with being uh, like it's just like medicine takes a lot out of you, and I needed to do something different. I needed to do something that involves entrepreneurship, uh, uh, some sort of trade, and. Uh, I wanted to invest and I lost a lot of money and I, I cried to my dad and I asked him for forgiveness because they were hit by some sort of a disease or something. What was your dad's response when you told him you lost all, all the chicks and all the money? I mean, he, th my dad was, oh my God, my dad was great. I don't know how he came, uh, like he put up with me. Uh, yeah, I lost 17,000 pounds at that time. And I, I, I don't I don't know how the like, he was just very very uh, cool about it. I think that my dad was one of the coolest people ever. Let's talk about your parents. What were they like, your mom and dad? Uh, dad was very cool. They didn't care about anything. <laughs> mom extremely strict. She wore the pants in the household. Uh, she was like too strict and um, too. Uh, like, I, I don't know, just like she was very, very, very controlling. Uh, comes from the fact that when her father died, she took care of the land. So she had to deal with all of the farmers and all of the people in the land. And uh, she was also a professor. She was like kind of a leader. So she, was a, she has got like some of the strongest personality. And that's why she clashed a lot with my brother. And that's why I was watching from afar. 
I learned my lesson and I ended up doing what I want behind her back. <laughs> so, yeah, so, uh, and my father was just like the coolest guy. He was like, he didn't care. He was like, I do whatever you want. Uh, my mom was the one who's always stressed out about us. Tell us about the moment when you saw your country changing and what that felt like. Is there a memory that you remember so vividly that you felt like, I need to do more or something is wrong? I mean, the biggest memory is like when I was in the hospital and we were getting ready to a day of surgery and then the uh, head doctor canceled the uh, list because we on the television we saw the attack on Tahrir Square. That is what actually started all of this journey for me. What kinds of things did you see? Well, all kinds of things. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to do like a heart surgery in, in the field. So I was doing simple surgical procedure like suturing, suturing faces, lips, simple injuries. Of course, there were like specialized bone doctors and eye doctors. Uh, we, we would triage them. So I was basically in the triage zone. Like many people, I, I didn't know, I was not very politically involved or active, and I saw people coming down the street, and I watched, and I didn't do much as, like, the, the what I did was just volunteering, you know, giving out food and clothes and medical, uh, I used my medical expertise to be part of the doctors that were stationed in Tahrir Square, use, uh, fixing the people who were injured in the clashes. At the time, Bassem had been accepted to start a pediatric heart surgery fellowship in Cleveland in the U.S. He was on his way out of Egypt, a bright medical future ahead of him. And as he was waiting for his paperwork to process, his friends thought it revived this idea that the two work on a project together. Tell us about the conversation that Tarit, your friend, had with you when he was trying to convince you to, I guess, start the, the show. Yeah, so uh, my friend Tari, me and him, we were, we were friends for a very long time. And uh, he was a YouTube partner. And in 2010, he started talking to me to about hosting a show on YouTube. That was before the revolution. And he said, like, what kind of show, whatever show you want to do, I will produce it. Why did Tari come to you and say, let's start a YouTube show of all the people he might have known? Maybe because I was cheap. Maybe because he didn't want to pay. I don't know. I, I asked him this question. I said, like, I, he said, like, you have a way when you speak to people, people listen. And I think they listen because I was too loud. <laughs> they thought maybe they'd do a YouTube show explaining the world's religions in five minutes. But ultimately, with everything happening in Tahrir, they couldn't stop thinking about making a show that was more immediately relevant. The thing is, when... What kind of like made me realize that there's something really wrong is that I would spend all my day there and then I go back home and I watch television. And then I see how the state-run media was twisting and spinning the truth and saying that all of these people are uh, traitors and paid operatives. And then when Mubarak stepped down, I I started kind of thinking of how can I make people remember that. I wrote the scripts in two days, and I collected videos on YouTube. And then he Tari got me a director, and the director, like, looked at the a handwritten scribble, and he said, "What the f- is this? I mean, I'm not used to this. I'm a professional director. Why am I doing this?" And he was like, he was very upset. It's like, what the hell? And then 
we released the show and like we're the biggest hit and then yeah let's do it and he was the same director who directed the show when we came to television so he remained with us what were your, in some of the things that we've read, you were inspired by political satirists here in the U.S. Can you talk about when that, when did you first start getting interested in, in comedy and p- particularly satire? So I used to travel a lot to the United States and when in my travels I, I discovered The Daily Show and Colbert and I just wanted, I just I was watching them every night and I fantasize about having the same show in Egypt. Why? Because this was amazing. This was an amazing way to to show politics. But in in the back of my mind, it's like that we'll never have this in Egypt. So when the revolution happened, suddenly everything came to place like, ah, now we can do it. So when Tari said, find the format, he was thinking of Ray William Johnson, who was at that time was like a huge hit on YouTube. He said, I don't want to do Ray William Johnson. I want to do John Stewart. I said, I don't think it's going to work. I want to do it. How did you, especially because you said growing up you weren't, you weren't considered the funny one. So where, where, did, where did it all come from? I have to tell you, I can't even know. But like I was watching the videos and I was trying to find links between videos and how can we categorize them. Kind of like making fun of what we saw during the 18 days. The first episode was about like how all of the different ways that people were convincing people to leave Dahriya Square. And that was the first one. And I have to tell you, when I watch it now, I don't think it's funny. I really don't think it was funny. I think, like, I know now much more that I can actually make this much funnier. But I think it was something new for people, and people were mesmerized by it. Although it was not, again, it was not the greatest thing, but it was new. So, and this is why, this is, this is just an example of how you can do something that's not that great, but you were given the chance to build on it, and you reach something that was phenomenal, which is the show in its final form. So describe to us the very first shooting that you did. Where, where was it shot? What were you wearing? How many takes? That was in the spare room that was supposed to be Nadia's room in the future. It was empty. So we set up a, uh, a desk, a banner, one camera, and the director was there behind the camera, hoping that this will work out. How did you choose what to wear, do you remember? I had like a limited number of suits, I just like, damn, I, mean, I can't even like look at myself right now. I looked so, such a, like a nerd. Why did I even like, I don't know. I mean, I have to tell you like when I remember those videos, although that was like the beginning of everything, I get really frustrated myself because I really looked so bad. So they had a script for their first episode. They made a makeshift set in Bessem's future daughter's room. They shot the video and put it up on YouTube. They called this new show B+. I didn't think too much of it. I think maybe 10,000 people watched the show. And two weeks, there was like hundreds of thousands, and two months, there were five million. And at that time, that was a big number. 
You said that because it was new and the circumstances and time with the revolution and people's power and all of this, that a show like this was possible. Can you expand on that a little bit? What what was it that you were doing differently? And why do you think, looking back, you say, you know, the first show wasn't even that funny, but it did so successfully because people were hungry for, for what? What was it that you were giving them that they they never had before? Making fun of power. And at that time, power was media, media, Citron media. So when you make fun of power, this is something that people did, wasn't used to. And we were naming names. We were very direct. We weren't playing around the bush. We were very direct and we were, for the first time, putting people accountable, holding them accountable for what they say on camera. What did Hala think, your wife? Hala is one of the most supportive people on earth. She, I don't know why the hell she, is she on this ride with me. I'm going to go to Cleveland, fine. I'm going to do YouTube videos now, good. Now I'm going to do a show, I'm not going to go to Cleveland, all right. <laughs> We're going to leave the country and escape and go to Dubai. Fine. We're going to leave Dubai and come to Northern California. Okay. We're going to leave North California, come here and work, work like live full-time in Los Angeles. Okay. She's been around. She's, she's a trooper. How did you and your wife meet? Can you tell us that story? Yes. I'll take you back a little bit. I always liked dancing. Uh, then I always was a dan- salsa dancer and I actually taught salsa for a few years in Cairo. I was, I had the biggest salsa classes in Cairo, as, as I was being a doctor. And then 2007, I discovered tango, and then I got into tango. I would look for tango festivals, tango teachers all over the world when I was traveling. And then I came back to Egypt, and there was like a small tango community, and my wife at that time was one of the new ones there. And I came in and I started showing people how tango is really dense, and uh, this is where we met. She came up to me because I was I, I was the cool guy coming from a road and I was teaching everybody and she cannot cannot deny that uh, <laughs> uh, like because no she was interested in the da- in like oh the dance and the music as a matter of fact she hated the music I put it's like who's that it's like it's like oh I don't know so that guy who's running the tango class like it's not me it's him it's like who's that and then she looks and like ooh but then we uh, became friends and from friends we became more than friends. A year later, we were, a year and a half later, we were married and we had a tango wedding. What does that mean? A tango wedding, which like we invited all of our tango friends and the theme of the wedding was tango and we were dancing the whole night tango. It was not one of those like very noisy weddings. It was very classical, very thing and our families was there and we're very enjoying it and so like, oh, is is this like a band? It's like, no, these are our friends. (laughs) I love that. Did you have a conversation with Heather about wanting to... Who, who did you talk to about wanting to start this show? I talked to Heather, of course. I talked to my father and mother. And like, but like no one, me, Tari, the director, Hela, my parents, ever expected this will go that big. Nobody expected this. Yeah, I mean, that's why when people say like, uh, how do you... It's like, when you ask people who, who were successful... Nobody has a formula for success. This is all uh, nonsense. Nobody. Because it, it just worked. It happened. The circumstances stuff. I'm not saying that it is... I'm not saying that you're like you're, you don't have to put hard work and everything, but there's a lot of people who put hard work and they don't make it. It just happens. I cannot give you a formula to be to do what I did because I cannot even recreate that. So... 
uh, when we talked, nobody expected that it would be that successful. And uh, five million people watched the show online, and suddenly I have all of these uh, networks approaching me to do a show on their platform, and said, but I'm a doctor. I am waiting for my papers from Cleveland. And then, so you know what, maybe I will... Um, I will do it. So we made an agreement with my mom because my mom had to approve everything that I'm going to put that project going to Cleveland off for a year, but I'm going to still going to be a doctor and go to the hospital. So I did that. So the first season, I continued to go to the hospital while doing the show. What was that first phone call like when you um, were offered a television show? So it wasn't, it wasn't really a call. It was, we, we were invited to meet different executives, different uh, TV stations. And then it was like, people were very difficult because they didn't want to put like a, a good, decent budget. They just want, let's say YouTube video. Who, who, at that time, taking someone from YouTube to putting it on television was unheard of. So they said, like, oh, it's something from the internet. It's going to be, like, flaky. It's not going to go anywhere. So here's a little bit of money. He no, we want to do, like, a good production. So people started to think that I'm arrogant. And I am uh, and I'm materialistic. And I said, guys, you know, if that doesn't work, I'm just going to go and travel to Cleveland. I don't care. It's either done correctly or not. So... Then we went to on TV and Nagib Sawiris, he was the owner, and he said, all right, you know, and he told me, like, listen, we're not going to make any money out of you, but, like, I, I like what you're doing. What was it that El Bernamek was giving you in a way that you... Cause Cleveland is very prestigious and talking about being a doctor for status, that's like status of status, coming to the U.S., all of this. But what, what was it that El Bernamek was fulfilling you that medicine wasn't? Well, when you get into media and you find that you have a voice and people listen to that voice, that's a big blessing. It's a responsibility, but it's also an amazing feeling. It could be toxic. It could be very dangerous. But I was appreciative of if you having this kind of opportunity. So you say something and people share it. And people agree or disagree. What you say matters. So in medicine, it's a very individualistic stuff. You treat one patient at a time. But in the show, you affect many people at the same time. A whole lot of people. So that's, that's, that's a big blessing. And I, I know kind of like... Uh, you know, sat sat satire is not just fun and games. It's about like what kind of message you want to to spread. So you can do like a sh uh, like a sketch that is funny but doesn't mean anything, doesn't leave people with anything. Every single sketch, every single joke, every single episode has to mean something and have to have a, a certain impact. So that was the responsibility. Can you give an example? What was the kind of impact that you wanted to leave people with? To le what kinds of thoughts did you want your viewers to have? I mean, the, the, the main thing is about basically taking our problems lightly, especially in politics. That was the main thing, the thing about, that we can laugh on our, about, like, uh, at ourselves and, about, like, and not take things too serious. But sometimes like, the authority would misuse its authority 
and you have to speak up. So you want to like alert people to that. And that was the part where people would start hating you. In the documentary, you you say some people, you know, um, like fame. But for me, fame comes with a lot of anxiety. Do you feel that way still? Yeah, at a certain point, it was a big, big burden, especially in Egypt, because it's it's anything that you say, you're going to be, it's like kind of damn if you do, damn if you don't. And uh, and because people get this uh, disenfranchised with their politicians and news media people, they just like turn to satirists, which is very dangerous. And then you try to tell them it's just a satirical problem. It is just having fun. It's having fun with the message, but still comedy. But it's just like people just like unload their stuff on you. And uh, and at the end of the day, you're you, you want to take a break, you can't. You want to like get out of it, you can't. And... Um, And to be judged 24 hours about everything that you say, even about the jokes that you say, just like it's very, very, very difficult. So it's just like a continuous pressure. So it was toxic uh, in that sense. But I, I, at least I didn't let myself... I, I, I mean, that's the one thing that I kind of... Uh, I was aware of from the get-go, so I, I didn't make it kind of... Um, I, I kept my, my, myself grounded. So I didn't really consider myself as a celebrity. I didn't go to the celebrities' hangouts or anything. And how did you recruit your team? Because this was a new kind of comedy. We recruited our team based on uh, passion, not on, on experience. Actually, there's some of the most experienced people who were... We kind of ditched them because they were not passionate enough. They were doing the same old thing that they used to, and we didn't want to do that. So we interviewed... Uh, a lot of people, and they came through. And do you, um, how did you teach yourself comedy? Was there was there any uh, sort of conscious, okay, I need to take workshops now, this is serious, or was it all just natural take, skill? Take workshop with whom? <laughs> there was no, nobody, there was, there was no industry. We, 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 we created something where there was no precedence in, in Egypt. And the old guard were just like belong to a different era, different thought. So who would you go to? So we basically, we trained ourselves. We just watched more and more John Stewart and Stephen Colbert and tried to be inspired. Basim, what made you keep going week after week, especially at the times that got really rough, the times where you had to send your wife and daughter to sleep somewhere else um, because there was fear? What made you go back every week until you couldn't anymore? Yeah, well, um, the fear was like was there, but I, you just have to eliminate that and continue because you you will either live with it or you you let it control you. At the end of the day, we have a deadline every every week. So if you produce a bad show, nobody will say, oh, he was afraid. Nobody cares. People just care about the end product. People are not going to make any excuses for you. What were the conversations that you were having with Heather, though, when things started to get really bad towards the third and the fourth season? Well, Hella was, was very careful not to put more stress on me. I mean, she was like, 
she was there for support, but she was she she didn't want to be an extra burden. What about with your parents? What were the conversations? Oh, my mom was very, very, very the, the, the whole time she was very agitated, very nervous, very worried. Uh, she wouldn't ever like she would say, oh, that was a great show, but like I'm worried about you. She's always worried, always worried. Sometimes, like especially in season one, when I kind of like hinted, made fun of the military, she called one of, after one of the shows and she was furious. How come you make fun of it, um, of the of the army? And you just, yeah, she was she was she was having a huge problem with me. And like the, uh, that old generation, the military was untouchable. My dad was very cool. He was very proud. Like, yeah, it's my, my son's a celebrity. I got tickets for his show. So that's totally different attitudes. We've, uh, we've heard in, in the film and in um, the book some um, your childhood friends towards the end of the fourth season sort of doubted your intentions and were questioning the comedy because it was so vocal against the military. Not, not just my childhood friends, my uh, members of my family. Can you, um, can you describe what that's like on the receiving end and then how you dealt with that? Yeah, there's a lot of people who, who kind of like grew up with me and they were even big fans and they got tickets to my shows and people who were part of my family and then they would like suddenly believe the uh, the, the lies about the military, that about me, you know? And it was... Um, it, just like the whole thing about like I'm, I'm a traitor, I'm, stuff it just like it was horrible <laughs> and so to to do that there were people like they were writing on facebook stuff about me it's like come on <laughs> it was a good it's a good excuse to block your family members on facebook but how, how do you how do you shield your heart or can you from things like that like how, how do you it, it was just overwhelming it was like one hit after the other uh, the death of my mom the death of my dad the uh, uh, the turn of the tide against me. It's just like too much. And I think by that time, I just had to either pretend that I have a thick skin or actually act as I have a thick skin. Because you couldn't afford it. Because uh, And also, as an add on this seven years of cyberbullying that, that did not stop a single day. Seven years of cyberbullying. And I'm not saying about cyberbullying, people still leaving comments. I'm talking about also media bullying. Imagine like you do a show and every single late night show, you being the headline and they're tearing you apart. Imagine waking up the next day and there's seven, 700 articles written about you in one week. 714 articles. Somebody actually counted it. When you do your, your best and you can't and then everything around you falls apart and there you cannot have the support anymore and you choose to leave, those followers call you a coward. You left us. You could have done whatever you want from outside. It's like, so why? Even if I could, why? I was there with 40 million people watching the show. And you were like, just like watching and, and just like laughing off every single weekend. And then you want me to just to use me as a tool. So I'm not going to get into this anymore. So, for example, right now when I do, when I advocate for plant-based diets, it's like, oh, you left politics and now you're doing a cooking show. I don't even care. I'm doing what I want to do. 
I st- I'm still vocal in politics in my own way. I do stand up. I, I, I tour around the states. I talk about politics the way I want. I'm not going to have to talk about the people that you want me to talk about. I, I just decided to live my life as I wanted, not as like what people expect me to do, because this is very destructive and this is a, a sure spiral way to, into depression. So I, I'm, I'm done with that. I don't care. Basim, did you ever deal with depression? Well, I think I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that I have some sort of depression. I'm not clinically diagnosed. I didn't, I, I didn't go to therapy. I think I should. But uh, I'm, I think if you're that exposed, you should be dealing with depression. There's nothing positive coming out from that much exposure. I heard in one of the, the interviews that you did previously that um, when the fourth season was taken uh, down, you had repeat offers to do to continue the show conditionally, yeah. not not saying the things that they didn't want you to say. Can you walk us through why you refused that or why you refused doing the show abroad? So when I left the uh, the country, I got like so many offers offers from outside the country, from people who don't like the regime, to do the show. And I said I'm not going to be a tool in other people's hands. And I got offers from the regime to come back to have kind of a watered-down version of a political satire show. And I said, I'm not going to go there. And I had shows from people from Dubai and Lebanon to do a game show or a late-night show or a kind of a fun-and-play show. I said, that's not me. And I couldn't. It's just like, uh, I told them, guys, this is not about politics. This is not about moralities. It just, it's just, it's, it's, it's a pure business position. You are buying me because I represent something. So when you put me on television, people expect something. When they don't see that, it will be a failure. So I'm talking to you in a business that you in, in a language that you understand. It's not about like what I believe in, morality, or that I'm a fighter. I'm just gonna put it to you in a very simple business terms. And other than that, I'm not gonna be happy because I'm not, I, I'm used to actually say what I want to say. And I believe that comedy means that you should be liberated from all forms of control. So I will end up doing a bad show. And this is something I fought all my life not to do. Can you tell us the first time you met Jon Stewart? What was that? What was that like? 2012, summer of 2012, I was there shadowing his team. I didn't even expect that I'm going to see him. Maybe I I was hoping for a selfie. And I remember the first selfie I got with him was very blurry because I took it very fast. But then he invited me to his room, uh, to his office, and we talked. I thought it was 15 minutes. It went to an hour and a half. And then we became friends. And that's how it started. How has your decision to move to America, or even your decisions to leave Egypt, to go somewhere else, were they at all influenced by him? Or what influence has he played in your life since then? Well, uh, he said one thing that is kind of resonated with me when I was before the final season, with the season that was a problem. He gave me two advices. One before that show where he said, make fun of what you're afraid of. So if you remember the first episode coming back, we made fun of things that we cannot talk about without talking about them. And that was, I think, one of the most genius episodes that we have ever done. That we will not actually talk about things, but people will know exactly what we're talking about. 
the second thing he said, like after like my show is done, I was like, he said, don't try to recreate Al-Bernamik because Al-Bernamik has its own legacy and you need to move on. And I think that actually made a big, I kind of like, I didn't follow the advice at that time. I still kind of, I still have residues. But after years, I can actually see what he mean. I cannot continue to identify myself as Basim who did Al-Bernamik only. There's so many other things that I am doing, and I don't have to lock myself into that. When, when you and your family decided to leave Egypt, can you walk us through what happened next? So uh, we got the, uh, I got news that the verdict against me was fi final, that I was fined by 100 million pounds, which is $13 million, which is ridiculous. And everybody saw this is a political verdict. So I escaped the country and I escaped to Dubai five hours after the verdict. We were going to the airport with me and my friend Ahmed Abbas and I was wondering if they would let me in, if they actually already put my name on the list. But we were sh checking the Twitter every five minutes to make sure that we didn't make the news. And uh, because once we're out there, they're going to like use the pressure of the public to actually put some kind of restraints on me. And thankfully that didn't happen. So I, I, I was on a plane, went to Dubai, and stayed there for a year. And in this year, I got all of these offers. And then I thought, this is, this is going to be my future if I stayed here. So I'm going to leave. And I left. And I decided to come here to the United States to start from scratch. And I decided to do that in English, talking to people from a different, different language, different audience. That's not my audience. I had to teach myself how to do stand-up in English. And I even didn't do stand-up in Arabic. So that is like, again, in the, in the span of four or five years, I changed my career for the third time. Can you describe what that process of reinvention has been like for you? So from, from medicine to comedy, and then from Egyptian comedy to now American tailored comedy? So from medicine to comedy, already talked about that because this was all like very coincidental. Uh, coincidental. And then uh, here it was just like a survival because I couldn't be just be a guy in, in the diaspora doing stuff that is related to a place that I'm not living in anymore. I, there's a new reality for me and I need to address it. And I need to speak to the people in living in the country that I'm living at, not to the 1% minority, but to Americans. So I would go to small comedy clubs where nobody knows me and I try my material. And sometimes I do well, sometimes I do horrible and I learn and I do I go again, <laughs> yeah. Did you ever consider that you would um, still do Arabic comedy from here? Yeah, but for whom? I mean, it's the internet. You yeah, but like for whom? I mean, what, but talking about what, what's happening in Egypt? Mm -hmm. Why? I already did that for four years. I already did that. And, and there, here's the thing. People think that satire will solve. Satire can work in a place where there is dynamics. So political satire in America is strong because you have a free society. It worked in, in Egypt the three years after because there was at least the illusion of a free society. So you can actually make an impact, you can change stuff, and there's also no danger for yourself. All of the people who fled Egypt and did stuff from outside Egypt, how successful are they? They're not. 
it doesn't work unless that you are there and you are in touch with what's happening and you can make an impact. Otherwise, you're just going to be an outlet for people's frustrations and it's not going to work. I'm, I'm not going to progress. And it can hurt other people that are related to me, right? So there's no point. What is the hardest part about comedy here? I think the hardest part of comedy here as someone, as you see like Maz Jubrani and Aaron Cater and all of, you know, and all of these people, actually English is their first language. I have to think in a language that's not mine. So no matter how we think, oh, you speak language very well. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Doing comedy is a third language. And you have to be very good at the second language and actually in order to do this, the third language. So that's, that's, that's tough. Are there things that you miss about Egypt? Well, a lot of people ask me this question and I answer the same way. I said that Egypt that I miss is not there anymore. So as sad as it might sound, but it's true. Um, both your parents passed away, Allah Hamon, and um, your father passed and you, you weren't able to go to the funeral. What are some of the memories from your parents that stay with you every day? I remember like that when my dad was very adamant to come to every show. He came to all of my shows, which I really appreciated. To do it with him sitting there, something amazing. My mom came to one show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she was very happy. At least she got it. She came to see me in my element. Their untimely uh, early death was kind of like, it's a blessing in disguise. Because I saw how my grandparents on both sides died a very painful long death of old age, of Alzheimer, of dementia. And they died very young and they died healthy. So I think I'm blessed that I don't have bad memories about them being disabled. That's the best thing. Like, like, so if you tell me what are the good moments, the good moments that we didn't have those moments. I didn't have bad memories about their health. That's the best thing. Because I've seen how my grandparents suffered and they didn't. There is something that you said uh, that I've heard you say in an interview. Um, I think an Egyptian-American asked you a question of what, what, can, what can we do from abroad? And you, your response to him was, well, you know that even though as an Egyptian living abroad... Egypt still consumes you? Do you still believe that? Yes, I think so. And I think you should stop making this happen. I should sh you should stop making Egypt consume you. You should really focus on yourself and your well-being, on your success. And when Egypt is ready for your skills and for your ex expertise, you can go. But you should not let that chase you. It's very, very uh, consuming. It's very draining. What would be the first two lines of your obituary? I have to be very honest with you. When I'm dead, I really don't care. People are so obsessed about what are they going to leave after they die. When we die, we're not going to, that's not going to even like matter. And it doesn't matter if you believe in a second life or not, because if you believe in the second life, Second life is much going to be like the, the, the first life will be dwarfed by that second life. And if there is no second life, you're dead, you're gone. Why do you care about what is going to be written about you? I think you should be worried about like what is actually being said about you as in, in your contribution from the people that you trust and you appreciate when you are living. But like, seriously, obituary, I, I don't know. 
why would you even care? You're dead. And you don't feel anything. And if you do, because of there's a second life, you're going to have like much more important things to worry about than an obituary in a newspaper that's going to be circulated for a couple of days and it's gone. Okay, fine. <laughs> fine, 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 fine. Tayyip. I, I, I know it's very nihilistic and I know it's very, but it's kind of like it's the okay. truth, guys. Okay, if you didn't answer that question, I'm going to ask another question. <laughs> if there's a second life, yes. what would you like to be in the second life? I w what I would like to be in the second life? I would like to be me. I would like to be happy. It's just like, uh, I, would, I would like to be content. That's, 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 uh, that's what I'd like to do. What does what contentment um, mean to you? The, uh, the absolute absence of need. That's contentment. Because need is, a pre is like the precursor of greed, of want, of like, you know, and that's stress. So if you don't need anything, you're happy, happy with what you've got, you're satisfied. See Nadia? Yeah. That is contempt. She doesn't need anything. She's just jumping on the, on the thing. <laughs> She's jumping on the couch just for our listeners. <laughs> Catch Basim live at some of his upcoming stand-up comedy shows or his latest video series, Plant B, a series looking at improving the current global health crisis through a plant-based diet. This episode was produced by Dana Balut and myself, Hiba Fisher, with editorial support by Alex Atak. Sound design by Mohamed Khezat and fact-checking by Zaina Doidar. Original Sting composed by Ramzi Bashur. El Empire is produced by Kerning Cultures. And next week on El Empire... They say that TV shows have had more of an effect on American fear of Arabs than anything else, and so that's something that I... I'm very wary of things that are terrorist plots because I have no interest in continuing to build on the fear people have of Arabs. Lastly, please help us by leaving a rating and review on whatever podcast app you're listening to us from. It really helps boost our rankings in the podcast stores. So as other listeners are scrolling through, they can find us and hear these wonderful stories. Thanks for listening. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.